Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Hey, Alec, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm good. All the better for seeing your face and uh, hearing your voice. Yeah, this is uh, this is fast becoming my favorite part of the week. So, uh, yeah, nice to be back for another one. Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting to talk about these things. And I think that the last episode was very interesting, you know, talking about tokenization, NFTs, it's it's much more tangible than some maybe like the Web3 and blockchain. It's more practical. And I think it's more interesting to talk about with, with the use case. And I think the episodes we're going for now are probably going to reflect that too. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice way to start talking more about use cases instead of just the intangibles of Web3. Um, but it's a, it's a big old topic. So I think we've only scratched the surface there and we'll have to to revisit tokens plenty of times in the future. Um, so I guess, yeah, we've, we've covered kind of the, some of the basics, the background on Web3, blockchain, and now tokens. Um, and one of the things we haven't really touched on is kind of this idea of monetization. You hear lots of that uh, in the token world as well, right? But we kind of, we, we didn't really go too deep into, into the, the financial or monetary aspects last week. Well, that was one of the things that I took from last the last week's episode is we could tokenize one of our episodes, one of our podcast episodes and potentially try to monetize it. And then when I kind of mentioned this to my mom, she was like, well, I wouldn't pay very much for it. And I was like, well, maybe there's a mechanism for that. Maybe we could use micropayments, which is the topic we're going to be talking about today to actually facilitate the, the purchase of one of the, one of our episodes. Very nice. Nice segue onto today's topic, Alec. <laughs> Supernatural yes. casual, I know. So, um, so yeah, micropayments we're going to be talking about today and trying to discuss kind of what they are, because that's one of these, these core uh, areas in Web3. It's something you'll hear a lot of people talking about. So, you know, as ever, shall we, let's try and define this term first before we go any further. So what, what, what does micropayments mean to you, Alec? So micropayments to me is being the ability to send a, a very small amount, like, you know, less than 10p or less than a penny to someone. Um, for a very cheap fee, basically for a very cheap transaction fee. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, it's something we encounter a little bit in, in, in real life, but it's, it, I wouldn't call them micropayments necessarily. Like I think what, one of the things, what's the smallest thing you've ever paid for? I think I mentioned penny suites in, in the first episode on web three, which was a, a little bit of an outdated reference, but you know, you're not used to going into a store and, and spending less than a few pounds right 
because normally they won't take a, a card payment for that. So micropayments is really um, includes those things that you can't, those values, those, those values that are so small that you can't pay for them in brick and mortar shops. But then it also will encompass a huge range of even smaller payments that are, you know, maybe sub penny or sub cent, uh, maybe tenth or a hundredth of a cent per per transaction. And we're going to kind of explore today what what's what, what what might you be wanting to pay for of that uh, in that amount. No, exactly. I, I think um, that we talk about small payments, like being able to send a penny, five p. You know, what was it? Freddo's used to cost five p back in the day. Now they're up to a, a pound or something crazy like this. But it, you can't imagine why you'd want to pay for very small goods with you know with change or, or cash typically. And I could say transfer really two or three p to you on your Monzo or your bank account. But I couldn't do that with a card. Like, what can you actually pay for? What's the, the minimum amount on a card? I think that's the difference between, say, a microtransaction, like you were saying before, which is sometimes less than a penny, and a small transaction, which is probably like five pennies to, to a parent, potentially. And I think, yeah, one of the most interesting things that we're going to touch on today is what would you want to pay for that costs less than a penny? Like when I first kind of came across this topic, I didn't understand why you would ever want to send you know, fractions of pennies to people. But yeah, I think the idea of micropayments is actually quite revolutionary and it's going to be a whole paradigm shift and there's going to be whole business models that are derived specifically from that concept, which we couldn't even imagine, you know, five to 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's worth maybe if we just quickly go back into the history of payments uh, on the internet to kind of see how, how we've arrived at the current state and why this micropayment paradigm is a new thing. So one of the one of those kind of references I really like is um, in the early development of, of Web1, so the early earliest stage of the internet, where it was just kind of this idea of sharing data and information widely with anyone. When they were building the kind of core protocols um, for doing this information sharing, you, may, you know, we're aware of this, this thing called the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, HTTP. You might see it when you type in an address um, in, in your search bar uh, or on Google. And one of the things that that protocol includes is these things called status codes. So if you've been to a website and there's not something there, you might get a, a 500 for a server error or something on, on the on the web page. And one of the status codes was actually, uh, I think it's 402. And the, the message was called payment required. And this was kind of put there in the early days of Web1, right? Because they were envisaging that you might you might visit a website and have to pay a small amount of money, say 10, 10 cents or uh, some other small micropayment to access the data instead of how we, we typically now have it. Um, everything's free, always behind some kind of bigger paywall that requires your credit card, you know? Yeah. And I think so, yeah, just when Jack talks about HTTP, I mean, that's effectively the, the kind of the rules of what's the protocol for transferring and, and interacting with, you know, sending data across the web, basically. It's what enables interoperability across the web. So when he says that, there's, that there was this 402 kind of code or protocol in that, it means that they had this in mind. They thought this was going to be a mechanism that people would want to add embed payments, small payments for, for data exchange. Um, but I, I would ask, why didn't that happen? Like, it seems like, you know, it's something we're talking about right now. They obviously thought about it when they were developing um, developing the web. Why didn't it happen? Exactly. That's the big question, right? What if, if the early developers were thinking about it, well, why didn't we, you know, start paying for websites like that in a, in a small kind of granular way? So I think the, the, the main answer is that there wasn't a, a payment system that could could do that, that could 
facilitate small transactions. So the, the developers of the internet thought, you know, I'm sure we'll get a, a payment system that can do this and, and never really materialize. So then, you know, that leads us to the question, why didn't one of these payment systems materialize? And I think that's all down to um, the costs of the incumbent payment systems and, and the cost of running a payment system in general. So, you know, when you go and make a, a, a bank, a, a debit card payment in a, in a store, for example, there are a number of different fees associated with that transaction. Now, as the consumer, you won't necessarily see those fees. It, you just get the, the price on the terminal. You tap your card and off you go. But the um, the merchant actually has to deal with a lot of these. And there's a I think there's typically three fees involved. So the, the, there's a fee involved with the, the bank that issues the debit card you're using. There's a fee involved with the, um, the terminal that the merchant's using, the, the point of sale terminal that you tap your card at. There's a fee for using one of those, which are actually very high. And then there's also a payment processing fee that you get that goes to, you know, a, a Visa or a MasterCard for, 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 for settling that payment, essentially making sure that it goes through and that there's this communication between the two banks and all the parties involved there are taking, you know, they have to be paid for, for, for doing that service. So they, they, they're taking costs away um, at three different points and those cost, those costs stack up basically so that, you know, below a certain point, it it, it wouldn't be, uh, there would be no revenue in it for them to offer payments below. Yeah. I mean, I think the limit is pretty low right now. I think you can't do anything below a, a 50p or something would be completely infeasible. Yeah. So like you said, there's a lot of intermediaries that are involved in, you know, just me submitting a transaction or trying to purchase something with a card in quite what I see is quite a simple payment. But there's a lot of intermediaries involved in actually getting that payment to the, the merchant's bank account effectively so we have this like flat fee plus a percentage which doesn't scale so when you know if you say i'm buying something for 50p then with all the fees that are included if they did support this the actual purchase might cost 80p and you know that just doesn't make sense if i know an item's worth 50p and i'm being charged 80p or the merchants someone's being charged 80p that markup doesn't make sense and i think to, to make this tangible this is the uh, the reason that a lot of places you know don't accept amex for example, you know, because the fees on Amex are so high that it actually puts a lot of pressure on the merchant to sell, you know, at a higher price, basically. It's why small businesses don't typically support people like or institutions like Amex and it stops the sales of, of small products. Yeah. And if you ever walked into a shop that has, you know, this minimum card spent, that's the same effect. And it's it's important to know that it's not just, you know, digital payments. Like when you're, you know, you're using your bank money, that's kind of a form of digital money. But um, it's not free to to handle cash either. When you make a cash payment, there are there are also costs on the merchant for for handling your cash and and, and processing it. That you know, again, you don't see as the customer, but the the merchant incurs. Which would you know, if we wanted to pay a penny for something in a shop, that that would also uh, make that more difficult. And then when your you look at the sweets. internet, right? <laughs> no, exactly. no one's there's buying a, your penny sweets. <laughs> there's probably more than one reason why we don't buy penny sweets anymore. But, um, but, but yeah so how does that how does that then map to the internet right because we're talking about web payments so how, how do we get from the world of the, the cost of um brick and mortar payments to, to to the web well i think um well one other point that kind of relates to the question there which i think was another inhibitor it wasn't in my mind it wasn't just about the fact that institutions made it prohibitively expensive to, to do micropayments because of the unnecessary intermediaries. I think there was also like a mental aspect to the consumers and the users. You know, if I offer two solutions 
one where you pay for exchange on the internet using micropayments and another that's free and you have some you know ad based internet which i think is what you were just alluding to jack if to me like the initial upfront cost of potentially having to pay for all engagements seems like the worst option of the two and i think that was maybe maybe short-sightedness because they didn't see that advertising would become such a big part of the social media you know facebook classically didn't have have advertisements at first it got the user engagement and you see okay i'm getting a free service and an incredible free service i get involved it gets very sticky and then all of a sudden the advertising comes in and i think that's the mechanism you're thinking about because we don't have this kind of inbuilt micro payments for for data exchange in the internet because of the reasons we just stated internet bases or internet companies had to move towards a more ad-based internet yeah exactly and i think maybe just to disentangle a couple of concepts here so i think you're you're kind of touching on the larger point that we can kind of delve into now but it's also worth remembering like you know what payment systems have existed for the internet itself i think one of the earliest dominating ones would be something like paypal right so some of the earliest uh, transactions I ever did on the internet were with PayPal. They, you basically had companies like PayPal. Um, you know, we also have Stripe now, but but making it easier for people to accept payments on the internet, and they have a very similar business model, if not even um, more expensive with even higher fees. So the same problem that exists in the real world became a problem of the internet, and that combines with exactly what you were saying there, right? It, it combines with what was the actual business model on the internet, which is this uh, this advertising-based, subscription-based, um, uh, monetizing your clicks, essentially, your monetizing your attention model uh, that came about on the internet. So, um, you yeah. know, you have these two things. You have the fact that there's one, there's no real payment system that is low fee. And then two, the internet decided, well, we don't really care about that anyway. We're gonna we're gonna make our money using something a very different model, which is what we're all kind of accustomed to now in, in Web two. Yeah, definitely. So without the ability, the ability for to charge users seamlessly in, in small increments, I guess like the big media players, they needed scale where you know you either had a, a an audience or a user base that was loyal enough to subscribe and pay regularly, or more and more the user base was big enough for for advertisers to care and them to make money from the actual advertising that was on there. And to relate this back to your point, now I've learned what clickbait is. I imagine this is one of the one of the reasons that clickbait is so prolific is because it's all about traffic and not substance. And this is like one of the things I think people, you know, to, we, we talk about social media a lot, but I think this is one of the things that people are starting to wake up to, you know, that the classic line that we keep repeating, I think everyone repeats is, if you're not paying for something, you're the product. People are starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, they are paying with their time, with the content that they're kind of, they're looking into with clickbait, all these kind of things. And maybe there are alternatives that are coming out, you know, social media alternatives where I do pay a little bit, but I get a better service because of that. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, you know, if we if, if we wanted to, to ever monetize this podcast, we would end up feeling the same the same forces of the the, the internet business model. You know, we would have to be competing with the or, or, or using the algorithm right that everyone is subject to. So, I always find it funny when you see a lot of people talking about you know being a digital nomad and working for themselves, not working for a boss. So they start an online media company. You know, they're producing content on TikTok or YouTube or something. Um, but for me, they've in a lot of cases, they actually replace a nine to five boss with the big opaque 
algorithmic boss in the sky and you know if they don't they don't do what makes the algorithm happy then they, they really struggle so it's kind of a scary situation to be in i think that um so much of of monetizing things online is now based on these big players and their algorithms mm. that we don't necessarily know how they work either yeah well you can't see this but jack is head to toe in branding um but little did the, the branders know that it's actually not uh, there's no audio that's uh sorry no visuals that are being released right now but yeah you are right and um, i mean yeah content creators who build followers and you know they actually do add value they're completely reliant on social media for outreach and because of like these lack of financial tools for you know for consumers to directly incentivize the the content creators they have to rely on either revenue sharing with the platform itself you know with facebook or they have to rely on advertising or brand merchandising in in the content they create so yeah, yeah i think the idea of direct payments in this nature which we're going to talk about a bit later is going to create like it's going to definitely affect influencers and the like, content creators exactly so i think maybe just to summarize that that thought on what you know what's the state of play in web 2 we kind of have an internet now where you know we never saw a micropayment system evolve and in its place we have kind of two dominant modes of monetizing things one is things that are free at the point of use or that look free but you know you're actually paying um with your attention your time through advertising and things and then the second business model is this subscription based one where you know you might get some things for free they might sometimes you call it a freemium model you might get some content for free or some some service for free and then the platforms have to to monetize um, by subs- you know making you subscribe to something like we've talked about online newspapers which do that they might give you three free articles but then you have to add and enter a ten pound a month subscription or something so that's kind of the state of play of Web two um, so where does Web three come in then what's the relationship of micropayments in Web three how is it, how are we looking to solve these problems so I, I mean it's I think so okay. If we're saying that Web3 is based on the principles of Bitcoin, blockchain, in a model in which interaction is more peer-to-peer and we don't need these unnecessary intermediaries, we can have these cheap micropayments or these cheap transactions, um, which allows us to, you know, for example, directly monetize data ownership. If I own my data and someone wants to access it, I can monetize their access to my data, for example. I think like we're going to assign value to data exchange and there's going to be a lot more transparency in the operations of you know, value exchange. Whereas right now, I don't know how people use my data. For example, I don't know how Facebook's using my data, uh, you know, the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all this kind of stuff. I think in the Web3 model in which social media platforms based in it actually monetize through direct engagement you see where that monetization comes from there's going to be a lot more transparency a lot more trust in the process but also a lot better distribution of of the value to the end consumers as well and i think there's all the stuff around you know improved kind of solutions i think we're going to go go into a bit later about like bots and spam and how we can kind of make these kind of these um, issues redundant in in a web3 model where we're kind of associating associating value to actual data exchange as well but yeah that that's my high level kind of understanding of how it's going to affect how web3 is going to affect um, micropayments or vice versa yeah i think I, I i completely fully agree with that you know um i would say bitcoin is essentially what presented uh the first practical way to do micropayments by incentivizing a competitive network to process payments instead of it being like a large gatekeeping 
network that's more um, rent seeking, let's say. Mm. So, you know, Web3 being partially, if not, you know, almost entirely based on the industry that started with Bitcoin, uh, taking that micropayments idea into in, into the mainstream is a huge part of that. And I, I like what, you, what you're talking about there with um, monetizing data, because, you know, it, that's kind of wrapping up some of the other problems we've been talking about into this, right? It's not just there's one problem that we can't do micropayments to pay for, you know, looking at a website. That's one issue um, that we might want to solve uh, on the web, on, on, the, on the internet. But since those early days when they had the, the status code, you know, they also didn't envisage that we'd be essentially giving up our data for free to use the internet. Um, and we also want to, to monetize that. And that's where they kind of go hand in hand, micropayments are small in nature, you know, micro, and so is data. So are the so are these incremental pieces of data that you're giving um, every time you 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 make you take an action, you click something, you you watch a watch a video or something. These are all small kind of granular actions. And how do you value them? Well, you need a smaller you need a payment system that can do to make small enough valuations, right? It needs to be able to micro payments are the only thing that can apply financial value to uh, an item of data, essentially, uh, an action or a recording or something, uh, recording an action you've done. So it's it for me. It's kind of funny that we've come full circle in that micropayments that were envisaged right at the beginning are now being reintroduced to solve some of the downstream problems that Web two brought along with it. Yeah, and I wonder if one of the, like the 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 limiters on this is that you know a lot of people say, well, it's actually not that cheap to transact on, you know. Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these things and there's you know congestion and the lack of scaling issues that we've seen you know the fact that there's more transactions per limited space means that the transactions fee are actually getting higher and you know these these kind of these these blockchains that are underneath supporting these models they need scaling to kind of facilitate this as the, the adoption and the user base increases yeah yeah exactly um it's kind of a there's a, there's a, some level of hypocrisy right in the claim of web3 to do micropayments but in practice many blockchains are that expensive that you know they've, they've uh, become what they seek to disrupt in that the cost of using them is, is so high in many cases but i think when we talk about micropayments in web3 we're talking about um this model that you know in in some cases is, is being proven um and and so long as you can scale a blockchain, then all these these use cases and possibilities are possible, um, and that's kind of why we want to want to focus on those. They become what they seek to disrupt. Was that like a a direct reference uh, to Star Wars? I like that. Now I'm thinking it's it's is it is it is it Batman? You live long enough to see yourself become the enemy, or something like that. That there there is a quote. I thought it was uh, Obi Wan when he says, "You became the very thing that you sought sought to destroy the Sith." <laughs> Anyway, I think we're going to tangent a little bit. Maybe that's a good point to call a break. Okay, so we've had a stab at talking about micropayments in general and what we we think they are and how they relate to the, the different phases of growth of the internet. Um, so I think at this point we normally turn to uh, I won't I won't call it our friend this week because Alex thinks that's weird, but um, we'll we'll turn to ChatGPT to compare our definition and see if it can tease out any other things we we missed. 
I think ChatGPT is your friend and I my tool, maybe. But yeah, so ChatGPT describes micropayments uh, as for small financial transactions, typically online, that usually involve amounts less than a dollar. These types of transactions are common in various internet services. Okay, nice. I think we kind of, we, we define that pretty well. I think we actually define them as, as much less than a dollar. But um, yeah, I, may, I wouldn't know if I'd define them. Um, you know, 50p is a microtransaction, maybe, but this has been pedantic. The second part of the definition is micropayments provide a way for digital service providers to earn money without having to charge a large amount all at once. It's like going to a store and buying one apple instead of a whole bag. I like that. That's quite a, that's quite a, an easy to understand example. And I think it's going to become much more tangible for people once we start to go into some of the use cases of micropayments. Yeah, definitely. I think I really like that as well, that that second part, because it's kind of, it's hinting at this idea of um, efficiency or economic efficiency that I, you know, it's something I have a big problem with personally in with the subscription model is that you end up paying a big chunk of, of money every month for something that you may or may not be using. You know, I've had subscriptions mm-hmm. where I've, I've not turned on the service at all, but I've still paid £10 and that's for me, that's like a, that's an inefficiency in 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 my money. But uh, you know, we all have these sure. kind of subscriptions. It's, it's it's great for the platform sometimes. But <laughs> I bet you sell your girlfriend that you're just paying for the subscriptions. You're not actually using them. <laughs> no, no, not not like that. But um... <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Um, yeah. So why don't we go into some of these actual models that we keep hinting at? Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I think. Um... So I think there are two kind of key areas of opportunity we have with micropayments um, that, you know, are slightly different applications of them. So one of them is is, is on micro incentives and the other is then I think payment streaming. So I'm just going to focus on micro incentives first. And, and, um, you know, another term you may have heard for this is gamification. And I think lots of us are becoming quite familiar with the idea of gamification through things like um, education and health. Um, so I know, you know, things like Duolingo, for example, are a really, a really good example of, of how you gamify learning a language. So, you, you know, you have small tasks to complete, you get small rewards when you, when you, when you, um, you know, you do some, uh, some vocab testing or something uh, to learn a language. And then in health, you also have, um, I know Vitality is quite a, a well-known health program where you know you're doing some small activities filling in a health report doing 10,000 steps a day you get a small reward for that that can build up over time to get a free coffee or something so gamification is is a really interesting thing and there's a lot of research showing that it's effective at at incentivizing behavior so Mm. I think taking that to the next level is basically what micropayments can do is instead of in those examples, you know, Duolingo, there's no real financial incentive. It's just a, it's a, it's a psychology thing. And in, in the vitality example, um, you you might be earning a coffee at the end of a week or a month, but you're not getting small, these small incremental payments. You, you kind of have to redeem it all in one go. So micropayments yeah. essentially let you be directly incentivized for everything you do. And this is good for the user because obviously they can get paid for something to do something, but it's also good for companies if they want to incentivize you know it they're their customers to do something to provide to provide a little piece of data to fill, fill in a survey you know how many times have you had a survey uh, someone asked you to fill in a survey and you've kind of gone oh i can't be i can't be bothered with that 
if you, if you yeah. can get paid 5p to do it i think you would right so that's kind of an exciting one i think yeah, I mean, Emma asked if I knew what the term gamification was. Um, and I do. I am a gamer, so I understand it. I've been very hooked on certain games. I mean, you know, it was when they threshold, they're like, you know, earn two more points and you get this milestone. And I've been playing the game for like 10 hours and I can't really like see straight anymore. But I, I still push for those two extra two extra points just to level up. Like, you can really get this. Like, the gaming industry so into this. And I think other industries are now catching up and being like, how can we apply the, the kind of the tools and the mechanisms of the gaming industry to, to real world life because I mean in a way they've kind of proven that it's quite addictive and it's very sticky and people people love this kind of stuff don't they exactly and I think that to give a kind of concrete example of, of how powerful this is is in something like recycling and I know this is actually happening in other countries already there are places that are much further ahead than the, of the UK than this but there is a I may have mentioned this already in a previous episode, but there's this, there's a, a plastic bottle return scheme that's being implemented in Scotland if it hasn't already started. And I think the idea is that as a as a consumer, plastic bottles that you get in in the shop for your your Coca Cola or your your kind of um, your Fanta bottle or whatever it is, you can get twenty p back off the the cost price of, of that item when you set take it to a, a recycling center which is a very clear incentive um for someone to recycle and, and it's a positive action that can help towards the, the kind of net zero goals of the uk i, I think uh, emma said in the chat malta is a good example of this you know where they've been ahead of of, of the curve on that and t- it's, a, it's a nice example i, I use the scotland one because it's 20p so it, it falls in this micropayment range mm. that we're talking about and and it just shows um there's so many places that you could apply that logic. Um, yeah. And I, I particularly like it for this kind of B2C angle, business to customer, where you could have, um, you know, a big company that wants to engage its customers better instead of just sending out these these impersonal emails that are just informative. You know, maybe a company is trying to educate its customers on uh, on environmental issues. Instead of just sending out a, a, an email that, that gives them information, maybe, maybe I incentivize them to, to 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 perform a little test or take a quiz to prove that I have actually educated them. Instead of it just being, you know, uh, inf- informative, I'm actually proving the impact that that we've got. So, I don't know if there's any other examples of that kind of incentive scheme that that, that interest you, Alec. But that's one that I I find particularly interesting. Yeah, I really like the the recycling one that you spoke about. You can imagine, like, not just the gov- like governments incentivizing that scheme, but also, you know, if I can scan a QR code of a Coca Cola bottle or something like that, then it's Coca Cola itself that gives me the money for that because they can prove, you know, they can offset their carbon footprint, prove that they're more ethical. And you know what we say is micro incentives is twenty p in this country. I mean, that's not necessarily micro for someone in i don't know sub-saharan africa so like this has this is scalable to other countries as well i know there's in certain countries where there are lots of plastic bottles these are actual kind of like full-time jobs for people so there's like real money to be had from these schemes it's not just like a little side hustle which we'd probably see in the uk like real kind of economies can grow from this in terms of like other angles that i think we can look at I am a big time reviewer. Like I love reviewing services like on Google, absolutely everything. I just love going to a restaurant. I knew there were people out there that do this. I'm I'm glad we found one. 
I am the person. Like people appreciate it. So that I, I, because I'm so into it, I don't even know like how much people appreciate it. It's like people. So seventy percent of consumers prefer um, user reviews or consumer reviews to marketing and advertising. People love that kind of stuff, and people need at least four reviews before they trust in the product of a company. And my point is, like, how do you know when one when reviews are authentic? How do you know when reviews are authentic? Like, it's a big question. Like, you see so many kind of spams online, especially on Amazon and things like that. And I think related to the the last episode, imagine being able to tokenize a purchase to prove that you know you paid for that cola bottle. You actually you know, do own that cola bottle tangibly, and then you can link the ability to review that that cola bottle because of your purchase. So that's that's the one element. But to relate to gamification, how do you incentivize honest consumers to review? You know, I mean, one way would be micro incentive. You don't want to like have to give a, a over five pound out for review, but five or 10 P just to leave a quick review. Like I think a lot of people would be inclined to do that. And it's the same with like loyalty programs. You can link this to loyalty, whereas say in coffee shops, you, it's more economical for them to offer a, a free coffee on, on the eighth coffee that you purchase. You could incentivize people directly by giving small amounts, like give them five, 10 P per purchase back and they can reuse that in store potentially. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think, yeah, the, the applications for this are kind of endless and there are so many ways that micropayments can be integrated to, to kind of what you're talking about in reviews. Like I think of something like uh, Q and A services like Quora on, online, mm. you, there's a model to, there to be had where you can have micropayments just for answering but then you have subsequent payments, micropayments for the reflect the quality of your answer. So mm. normally you have a, you you have like ten answers given to a given to a particular question, and then people come in and up, up or down vote them. They'll rank them, and yeah, yeah. if you have a micropayment, I know, for, <laughs> I know, but not everyone necessarily spends all their time googling the answers to their problems like you, Alex. Some people, <laughs> you know, might, might might not rely on the internet. So um, just there upvoting your answers every time. <laughs> Yeah. And again, you know, that's that that's incentivizing the right kind of behavior, I think, is crucial. That's why I kind of say uh, micropayments for micro incentives. You're trying to change or uh, uh, incentivize a type of behavior like recycling is one example. And then quality of information is 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 the other we're talking about here. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I think uh, reviews, surveys uh, online questionnaire kind of things yeah. is, is a really good example um, even to i just realized to like oh i was gonna say even to link it back to the social media that we were, we were talking about earlier like there's such a problem with bots on twitter and you know fake accounts and, and spam accounts and all this kind of stuff i mean we, we also talked about the fact that it's really difficult for influencers to be directly incentivized so they have to add brands and advertisers and all this kind of stuff like if imagine if you could you know, directly, I think we used it in a previous example, directly engaging and directly sending micropayments to people. That would also kill off the entire kind of botscape that exists on Twitter. If they can, you know, bots are really easy to spin up and make a quick bot account that then spams people and is quite aggressive and, you know, to the detriment of the platform. But if we start charging micro pay payments per engagement online, you get rid of all these bots, don't you? Like they no longer become economical. And you could apply yeah. this to emails as well. Like, you know, how many spam emails do you get? Imagine if it costs like a small micropayment to send an email, it would just remove the ability for spam accounts to just send out millions of emails to accounts they've never like never even recognized or never even heard of. 
Yeah, for sure. I think um, this is a super interesting point, right? You touched on. I just want to mention before I kind of uh, talk about email, the the social media one is is really powerful, and it comes from I think an asymmetry of cost that you have. So mm. just by going from a free to a it costs something model completely changes. Um, it introduces a huge asymmetry to be a bad actor. So even if the cost, you know, it's non-zero, but it doesn't have to be high. It could be tiny. It could be a tenth of a p to to um, to post, but it then becomes so expensive to subvert to spin up a million accounts. And it's the asymmetry mm-hmm. between behaving um, in a socially uh, good way, let's say, uh, and then behaving as a bad actor trying to subvert. So I think it, it's kind of this whole new paradigm and. The email example I love, and I'm so glad you mentioned it because I completely forgot about this. But do you know? Are you aware of the the proof of work co- aspect of email, Alec? Is that as it's something you come across? No, I'm not. But I'm sure you're better okay. to enlighten me. Cool. So this is this is such a nice link to Web three. I think actually. So proof of work. Before I, I carry on, is um we may have touched on it. I'm sure in in previous episodes, but. It's this idea that you need to expend energy to do some work um, to prove that you've you've kind of made some some you you you've, you've sunk some cost into something, right? And it's the kind of the bedrock of how Bitcoin works and how many other blockchains work. So proof of work is this thing that essentially commits you to to, to a cost to do something. Now, proof of work has been massively popularized by Bitcoin, but it was actually used earlier than that for email. So emails and I, I they might even still do it I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure but at some point at least in the past so every email you would send would have a, this this small proof of work attached to stop spamming and it's the same idea of asymmetric cost it would be very expensive to do this proof of work for millions of emails to spam a lot of people but for the average email it, it, it doesn't cost much so is that that's, happening that's nice now example. I don't understand how has this not been implemented I get spam all the time it's so tiresome <laughs> Yeah, I, I, so I, I think it's um, it was definitely implemented in some places. I don't think it's used widely, and it never really caught on mm. because it wasn't it wasn't trying to be too prohibitive. I think email, when it came about, the idea was um, making it as as open as possible. But it's just interesting that the idea has existed of trying to stop spam by adding a cost. Right, that's the key idea, and now micropayments are. People are looking at social media as a way of doing this. And, you know, as a concrete example, we've seen, I think in the last few weeks, Elon Musk. So Elon Musk has also gone full circle, right, from founding PayPal as one of these first payment systems and the Internet that stopped micropayments. He is now proposing that they allow that for news publishers on Twitter. So you can pay a small amount to read an article on Twitter, which is kind of really fascinating to me. Yeah, we, we tried to get him on as a guest today, but I think he's a bit busy and annoyingly. Maybe, maybe next episode we'll get him on. Yeah, hopefully. But the, um, um, the other aspect, you know, we've talked about micro-incentives, gamification. So the other one that I want to speak about, I think you touched on it a bit earlier, Jack, is payment streaming, which I find very exciting. This is where I really see you know, a business model kind of flipping and, you know, much more kind of, it's really focused on the consumer and benefits to the consumer. So really quickly, so we, you know, we're very used to the concept of paying subscriptions, you know, paying 
on a yearly basis for you know your Spotify, your Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever it is. But most people, even though they have the option to pay yearly, um, they they tend to pay monthly, even if over the course of that year that costs a bit more. And you know the reason for this is, is it's better consumer cash flow. No one really wants to pay a hundred pound upfront for the year when they can pay you know ten pound every month because of cash flow. So it means I have more money per month and I can better manage my money. But yeah. also, like you said earlier, I think you guarantee that you pay for what you use. If I pay for a year upfront and I don't like the service after two months, then I can just stop. I can I still have to pay for the remaining ten months. But if I pay on a monthly basis, the most I'll ever lose is a month worth of payment if I decide to stop using it. So that's the second benefit. But the final benefit of breaking you know, large subscription payments down to smaller payments is you guarantee that there's consistent content quality. If all of a sudden the, the streaming service becomes poor, again, I'm going to cancel my subscription. So there's potentially more pressure on them to keep outputting good quality content. And this is like a, a really common concept. Everyone understands it. People tend to want to pay monthly over yearly. I think it's like 70%. Well, I, say, I think I know 70% of consumers prefer to pay monthly over annual subscriptions. And 90% of consumers around the world have at least one rolling subscription service. So this is like mm. a very common, common concept. But why do we limit it to monthly would be my question. Wouldn't you prefer to pay for a service, you know, on a daily basis or an hourly basis or even like a by second basis, Jack? Well, and this is to be honest, I mean, I'm going to call this an open question, right? So mm. one of the things I, I know there's this research out there that talks about, like, what's the maximum number of subscriptions a U.S. household will is willing to have? And it's quite low. It's something like four or five. Mm. Um and part of that is obviously to do with the cost of having many subscriptions. Partly, part of it might also be due to the um, the mental energy of managing subscriptions. And I'm actually I, I'm kind of holding out judgment on whether people will for, for for all applications if people will prefer the idea of paying monthly because it's kind of a way of bundling up lots of small interactions into a, an easy to manage cost mm. that takes less mental energy. Um, will people Will people be able to get around the hurdle of saying, no, I'm going to pay for exactly what I use, but it means I have I can see payments going out all the time. And I don't know, actually, if that will be something that people latch on to or maybe people will prefer the subscription model for that reason. But um, that, I guess that's a problem of user experience, right, and how you design the solutions. Yeah, I, I think for me, so that the concept of this is, like I said, breaking rather than you know paying on a yearly basis or monthly basis, breaking it even to even smaller increments that are paid more regularly. So like you know, rather than paying monthly for your entire next Netflix subscription, you pay per episode that you watch. Mm. Or rather than paying the example you gave, I think in one of the first episodes was rather than paying for a newspaper up front, you pay, you know you pay this ten pound for the whole newspaper, not knowing how good the newspaper is going to be. You pay per page that you read. You pay like ten p per page. That you read um but you can even apply this to gyms swimming pools all these kind of things pay per second that you're actually there and i think yeah i, I don't think that this model is going to necessarily replace like existing subscription models and it, because like for the reasons you mentioned some people prefer convenience even if it means they might yeah. potentially lose out on quality or have like worse cash flow management purely because of the convenience but i think there will be an alternative especially for people that you know are kind of more economically strapped like you want to break these payments down into smaller models like if someone said to me okay i'll offer a netflix equivalent where you pay daily 
and I'm tight that month, yeah, why wouldn't I opt for that kind of solution? I only use Netflix, you know, well, I actually use Netflix a lot of the time. But if I only use Netflix on weekends, maybe I only want to start my subscription on a Friday night and finish it on a Sunday morning and just binge yeah. an entire series for the weekend and then stop my subscription again. Yeah, I'd say Netflix is probably the one subscription where I do get my money's worth and probably more. Um, but I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there because it's not, again, and a lot of people will throw the baby out with the bathwater with Web3 and go, we're going to replace everything. But no, it's about, I think micropayments are essentially just a credible alternative to the subscription-based model. And people will love the payment streaming flavor of micropayments probably if if the cost is is important enough to them people who want the convenience will will probably opt for the subscription model and carry on but you know you only have to think of something like energy energy payments i think that is is exactly the kind of thing where you know we we kind of we, we have a pseudo uh micropayment model with these smart meters where you can track um how much you're you're using you kind of you 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 have a micro monitoring system but you're not actually paying in increments you're still just paying at the end of a month um but i think energy is is a good example of where you literally do you really do want to pay for only what you use and you don't want to pay for anything more or less so that that's yeah. that, that that maps to micropayments and payment streaming perfectly i think i think a good example that i've experienced in my past is like paying for tutors or paying for therapists like physical therapists like all this kind of stuff they have really high high expenses you know it's like it's 80 pound per hour 100 pound per hour you pay up front there's no like guarantee of quality like mm. imagine i would be so much more so much less risk involved if i was to pay per minute if i was to say okay pay one pound per minute that i'm actually in there like i guarantee straight away that there's there's lower risk because I, they're, I'm going to ensure they're going to be ensured quality from their side. And I'd be so much more willing to opt into services like that if they existed. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it just kind of lowers the barrier to entry to accessing services. Right. I think that's kind of the, the, the crux of what you're saying is I don't need, I don't want, I don't need to pay a 50, 60, 70 pound upfront fee to do something. I can just pick up the phone because you know, this, you could, you could conceive of, um, I've seen Web3 applications where you can pay per second of someone's time and people can list their, their rates, maybe they're 10p a second, maybe they're £5 a second if they're, if they're an Elon Musk, maybe even more. Um, but at least it gives you a way of having some kind of level of access to work out what you need. And there are so many, you might have a conversation where your problem gets resolved instantly and, and, it, and, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to have to pay this big chunk of cost um, for something. And then you might have other examples where you do need to pay longer. So it's, again, just a more efficient way of allocating resources, but it also lowers the bar to people accessing the resources in the first place, I think, which is which is really useful. Yeah, and like it, it might not be suitable for everyone. Like I said, like you said before, that mm. some people will opt for convenience, paying monthly. But some people might, you know, use more than the mean. They might be the kind of the top one percentage of Netflix users like you. So maybe a pay per episode subscription wouldn't work because you'd be, you know, watching it eighteen hours a day every day. <laughs> you probably price yourself out. So it's not for everyone. Yeah, exactly. I think I think uh, there are plenty of caveats as with everything. Um, but I think broadly, you know, we're, we're quite optimistic about both these these propositions of micropayments. Um, oh, yeah, I'm so they, excited, especially for content like media, yeah. even like access to facilities. I find this like to be such an exciting kind of prospect. I'm really looking forward to seeing what businesses will start to deploy it. 
Yeah, for sure. It's, it's it's like it's very much the space of possibilities opening up. We don't know what will be what you can do with this, right? We're just listing things that we think we're actually listing a lot of existing businesses and business models that could be altered using micropayments, but we kind of are ignoring all the possible new business models that we don't even know of and the new companies and, and use cases that we, we can't even conceive of right now that will be made possible by micropayments. So I think, you know, that that's also what excites me is the unknown here. Maybe to uh, to finish today, I think another hot topic, right, is is AI, artificial intelligence, in the news with things like chat. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been we've been you know for for a number of episodes talking to our friend ChatGPT, but um, we haven't talked about the significance necessarily. And I think everyone's talking about these large language models and and chatbots and things, but I think it's worth us considering how micropayments could impact them and how they, they might be related because i personally think it's a huge it's a huge um potential marriage of the two things but you know i wanted to know do you have any opinions on that yourself are you talking about like what the the economic usage so right now is like are you talking about how i pay per usage of ChatGPT? you're talking about how the data is actually exchanged in, in the back end well, I think I think both, right? I think Web three and AI have lots of different overlap. Like, I think yeah, the most obvious use case is just micropayments for usage of of them. Because um, I don't know if you've seen a few weeks ago the Mid Journey service, so the one that generates these photorealistic images based mm. on text prompts. You can describe what you want, and it'll it'll spit out an amazing image, which is again really scary. But they had a free trial and it was so inundated with use that they had to stop the free trial and you have to go straight to subscription now. And it got me thinking, wow. you know, if you just had micropayments available to, 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 you know, you pay 10p, 50p. I mean, people will pay a lot of money for these pictures <laughs> before, before mid-journey. You probably pay hundreds of pounds to an agency to do these things for you. So you, you, could, you could be charging 50p a pound for every use of the of the of the mid journey service instead of forcing people to jump straight into an expense subscription so i think you know just funding the ai models themselves is a great use case for micropayments yeah, well you tell me now i mean i'm one of those suckers that signed up to the chat gpt <laughs> subscription but even then they, they give you like a, a number of uses so it's like so obvious like you get 25 uses a day or something like that for for chat gpt4 so it, it directly aligns with the amount that i'm paying like i suppose the problem is that over the month that I pay for 25 uses a day, like it does break down effectively to fractions of a penny per usage. And there's not mm. the economic models to support it right now. Well, they don't think there is anyway, but we, we kind of uncovered this episode that there are the economic models to support it. So that effectively wraps up the episode. We've talked about micropayments, what we think they are, you know, how we've kind of come full circle from the early inception of micropayments and are now actually getting to a state where we can start to deploy them and use them in, in real businesses. We've gone through two main kind of applications, micro incentives and payment streaming, and we went through a lot of applications and use cases where these can be applied. So yeah, I think micropayments is an extremely, extremely exciting topic and the kind of the use cases and possibilities are endless. So yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri.
Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.